Welcome to the Sustainable Value Chains podcast with EcoVadis. My name is Fergal Byrne. Join me as I speak to senior business leaders building sustainable value chains across a wide range of industries. We explore key questions related to the drive to sustainability, from procurement to the role of technology and innovation, regulatory pressures and labor standards, transparency and risk management. We explore what is working, the latest thinking, and identify key lessons and insights. I'm very pleased today to welcome Andrew Winston to the inaugural episode of the Sustainable Value Chains podcast. Andrew is an internationally recognized speaker and consultant on corporate strategy, helping executives and companies build a thriving world. His work focuses on megatrends and how to build companies that serve many stakeholders and not just shareholders. Thank you very much, Andrew, for joining me today on the inaugural episode of the Sustainable Value Chain podcast with Ecovadis. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about your work and indeed uh, your most recent book with Paul Pullman. But maybe before we dive into that, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and work, Andrew? I've been in this space of the overlap of business and society, kind of more broadly defined for the last 20, 22 years. I came out of business, worked in consulting, worked in big media companies, and had a real wake up kind of values transition right after the dot com crash. I'd been in a startup and just realized I wanted to find something that had a little bit more meaning for me. So I made this right turn and ended up going back to school for environmental management and then, you know, using my MBA and this new degree to kind of combine my work and started writing books and and working with companies and speaking around the world. And I've been doing this for 17 years or so now, really trying to understand the world's megatrends, the push towards companies taking environmental and social issues much more seriously in their business and using it as the growth and profit engine for their business to help solve the world's problems. And that's that's really my mission is to is to change the way companies see their purpose and to see how much they can do to solve the shared problems of the world. That's a great vision, Andrew. Your books follow the theme of leveraging sustainability in, in various ways as a key strategy for both financial success and impact. Can you tell us a little bit about your latest book with Paul Pullman, Net Positive, and maybe just give us an overview of some of the key ideas here? You argue that Net Positive is not only possible, but it's effectively essential for businesses. Right. So Paul Pullman, for those who don't know, was the CEO of Unilever for a decade. He was the CFO of Nestle before that. He's a true business leader. And Unilever has been ranked by those who pay attention to sustainability as really the number one example, number one company in pushing this agenda. And he he made it core to the business starting in you know, 2009, 2010. Unilever had had a background with doing plenty of good things, but he made it really the core mission of the company. And that's in essence, the, the base of net positive. I mean, we we go beyond kind of just what Unilever did, but we got together because I've been writing these books for years and Paul had this experience, obviously making this all happen in companies. And we said, you know, the challenges we're facing are growing so fast and we're still kind of behind the curve, right? And the, the, the climate challenges is getting worse. Inequality has been getting dramatically worse over recent decades. And we need companies now to be a, you know, a, a real part of the solution and really move beyond incremental change. You know, that's what most companies have been doing is saying, okay, I'll reduce my carbon footprint. I'll, I'll go look for maybe some human rights issues in the supply chain and try to do something about it. But it hasn't been transformative. So 
what we define in this book as a net positive company is one that is profiting and growing. So this is a still a business strategy discussion, a business book, but you profit and grow by solving the world's problems, not creating them. And the core question we ask is, is the world better off because your business is in it? And I find that people really pause when they take that in and you kind of naturally start to think, well, is the world better off because I'm in it? You get into this kind of purpose discussion about yourself, your mission, the company you work for, what are you trying to do? Um, and this takes you down a, a really different path about what a business is about. And, and a, a net positive company is one that improves the well-being of everybody that they touch. And for a multinational, that's kind of everybody. And it means taking a broader view, in particular, of your entire value chain. And that's what really connects to you know, this discussion, the work of Ecovatis and others. And it's that broader view that's really a core principle. What we talk about in the book is ownership, taking ownership of your impacts, whether they're intended or not. And that's one of kind of five core principles. The others are really about taking a longer term view. It's critical in this discussion. You have to, the, the pressure on especially public companies to produce shareholder value this quarter, that pressure is still obviously very real and is in, in some sense the major hurdle. But it's a long term view about long term value creation in, in a you know, multiplicative kind of growing way by investing in your future. It's a multi-stakeholder view. So it's not just shareholders. It is your communities and your suppliers and your employees, your customers and on and on. And by doing those things right, by solving the problems of stakeholders, you then produce shareholder value. That is one of our five principles is that shareholders get value, but it's because of what you do as a business. And then finally, there's a, a real belief you need in transformative partnering in the, the scale of collective action that we need to solve these problems. Those five together really define a company that goes beyond just trying to do better and moves into the territory of helping regenerate the world. That's very interesting. How does net positive relate or go beyond, indeed, the idea of sustainability? Many listeners will be familiar with ideas of sustainability and sustainability strategy and so forth. Can you maybe just explain a little bit where net positive relates to that idea, Andrew? Sure. I mean, in the, in the simplest sense, sustainable is really kind of just keeping your nose above the water, right? It's just surviving in many ways. Sustainable has been, a, I think, a very productive word for years. I don't have as many problems with it as others, I suppose, because it is exactly what it says. Like, can we keep doing what we're doing forever? And if you can't, something has to change. And generally, I think we can maybe all agree that nature and physical systems really have the last decision on this. Like, if there isn't enough stuff, we're not going to create the economy or the livelihoods that, that we want. So sustainable is really just about, can we get to that level? And that would be great, right? We're not close to sustainable yet, but there's a different mentality of saying it isn't just get to zero of waste or carbon emissions, but to go beyond. So, you know, we borrow from the work of Bill McDonough and Michael Brongart, who have written books like Cradle to Cradle and Upcycle. And they describe a world where instead of thinking about how do we reduce something like emissions or let's say safety accidents to zero that you kind of flip the chart in your mind and say, let's, let's draw going towards up towards zero from negative, like below the chart to zero and then go beyond. And so what does beyond look like? If you go into positive territory, it's not just safety and no accidents. It's the well-being of your employees and everybody that you touch improving that well-being. It's not just cutting carbon and using more renewables. It's starting to sequester carbon, reduce carbon and take it out of the atmosphere 
through your products, through your services, through your investments. And that's what you're starting to see the leading kind of the leading, I think, net positive focused companies do. So you have a couple key tech companies like Microsoft and Google and others that are investing now in carbon sequestration, saying they want to take carbon out of the air equal to all that they've emitted since they were founded. That's a net positive approach. And there's something that happens quite often in our lives, but in business, where if you set a big enough goal, like zero is pretty big, but even beyond, it changes the discussion and you have a different path and maybe a different sense of innovation that sometimes creates leapfrog situations. So you're not just trying to incrementally do less and less of something and you maybe find ways to do none of it, right? To change how you do something in a more fundamental way, the materials you're using, the way you create your products and services. And, and that gets you into a different mindset and it, it forces you again to work with others, to change the whole system. And that's really the, the bottom line of this is that you have to be part of a real deeper systemic change to make net positive happen for your business, your sector and, and the world. A great ambition. Since you started writing, you started writing net positive, we've witnessed uh, pretty profound changes in the landscape facing business. I'm just wondering how has this affected the main ideas in your book? Well, I mean, we were writing, it's interesting, we started writing and working together right before the pandemic hit. And so we were writing at the beginning of this really monumental transition time, I, I think, for humanity. The pandemic has changed more than we really realize. And I think it will have repercussions, obviously, for a very long time, you know, on the way we interact, the way we choose to just interact with each other as humans. How much are we using screens? How much are we not? Whether people work together or not, there's so many deep changes. But it also, you know, really challenged companies early on, on their meaning and purpose, because there was so much that needed to happen that didn't fall into the normal quarterly, you know, maximization of profits. There was so much about were you supporting the communities you operated in? What were you doing for your employees that were worried about getting ill and dying? How were you helping your suppliers and your customers? And so the really the best companies like the Unilevers of the world were working kind of with, with a different view of how do they help solve this really shared, this shared problem? How do they build different supply chains to help get the kinds of materials we needed and, and medical products to everybody? There was just so much going on. And on top of that, You've had these moments of real social awakening and awareness. The, the murder of George Floyd in the U.S., I, I think, will go down as an incredible turning point in race discussions and has created some amazing movement in companies. I mean, there were protests around the world. It wasn't just a U.S. thing. But there's also been huge moments of indigenous rights in Canada and South America. There's much more focus on equality of women in, in you know, Asia and Middle East. There's just this rising need to figure out how we all exist together. And it's creating these amazing tensions, right? So there, we're in a, a pretty profound, volatile time. I, I don't think anybody has seen anything like this before, how fast things are moving technologically. AI in particular is moving very quickly, but also just the entire clean economy is moving at exponential scale. And the way we are as people with each other has changed exponentially because of social media and information. All of that has changed the context for business dramatically. And I, I feel like there's been more change in what it means to be a business or what's expected of business in the last few years than in the 20 or 30 before that, for all those reasons. And what that means now is companies, especially the big ones, have to have a stand on 
climate and inequality and biodiversity, the big existential threats, but also democracy and misinformation, race and LGBTQ plus rights, gender equality. There's no being on the sidelines anymore for the really big companies. And that's rippling into their supply chains and affecting every company. So it's a new era and there's there's really no sitting it out. And that's part of what's creating so much of the tension, especially in the US where these issues have become purposefully more of a political football. And I think that's gonna, yes, change the dynamic of how we talk about these things, but the fundamental forces driving this change are not going away, whether or not one political party is angry about it or not. Very interesting. Indeed, Andrew. Now, you mentioned supply chains. Now, I'd be interested in getting your thoughts on how important supply chains in particular are when it comes to a company's sustainability and net positive efforts. Well, it's really critical, right? I mean, part of the, as I talked about before, part of what makes net positive different is that you're going beyond your own four walls. And this is not just a net positive discussion. This is happening now kind of naturally in companies as they realize that most of their impacts, unless you're heavy industry or an energy producer, your impacts are really not in your direct control. It is scope three. It is the your supply chain or your customer. And, and by a large percentage, generally for most sectors. So to have a real discussion about your impact on the world and improving that, you have to be talking about your full value chain. And that's kind of one dimension. And then in the other across your sector, across your peers. And in both of those dimensions, the conversation has to really expand. So your extended impacts are vital to this. I think the days of saying, well, look, our, you know, we're going to go to net zero in a factory or we're going to cut our emissions in our own buildings. That's becoming not even table stakes. That's just kind of a given. Like, why wouldn't you do that? It saves money. It makes your operations more efficient and on and on. The real level of competition now is what are you doing to take the entire value chain, material use, energy use, human interactions and you know human rights and living wages? What are you doing for all these things across the value chain? So this work is vital and it's based on increasing demands for transparency, you know, across the board, increasing data needs. And it is now becoming regulated, right? There's directions and directives coming down from the EU from the Securities and Exchange Commission in the U.S., driving towards, in the next few months, much more specificity about what you have to measure and report to be a a public company in particular, but to be a company in general. And they're going to move very quickly to scope three. So you're going to have to start reporting and getting data on both directions from your own operations. I mean, that's going to change this conversation pretty rapidly. Hopefully we'll touch on some of those questions when we discuss the the big trends that you see coming, the mega trends that are going to affect companies. So you think that supply chains, are they getting appropriate C-suite attention now? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I, I don't know. I think you're certainly seeing probably more value chain awareness in the C-suite. They, I think they're more likely to feel it from the customer end of it. A lot of what's driven the C-suite into this discussion of ESG. I mean, look, there's three, in, in my view, over many years of working with companies, there's really three categories of stakeholder that, that get the attention of the CEO. For public companies, it's clearly investors, and that's been placed above all, which is its own problem. 
there's customers, and there's employees. And when there's a major move in any of those, they wake up. What's happened in the last few years, and part of the reason I'm saying there's so much more change than in previous years, is all three of those have moved. And in reality, investors weren't really at the table for years. Customers weren't really at the table for years. Employees were pushing as we get more and more millennials, now Gen Z. But all three of them have really come together. So I think there's more C-suite attention for what people are calling ESG. And that, again, naturally extends to supply chains. But I don't know if they're really specifically looking yet in the way they should at supply chains. I think it takes a more advanced view to realize how much happens there and that suppliers need to be more than just your low cost provider of some input. They have to be partners and they can bring you tremendous value if you're working with them in a really smart way. But how can companies reconcile the time frame, the timeline required to realize the returns, sustainability, net positive strategy that you talk about? Yeah, it's a good, I mean, look, it's always an important thing. Like I said, everything, every business has investment choices. Some are more used to long-term investments. If you're in the pharma business, you might invest in a drug for 15 to 20 years from now. You know, some are used to these cycles. In in tech, there's 18 to 24 month cycles of the latest chip, the latest iPhone. It kind of depends on the sector, right? And everybody has different approaches to the return they want from investments. And again, some things are very quick. You can do stuff to make your business more efficient that pays off immediately. Some of this is longer. If you're trying to work on your supply chain and make it more resilient, really rethink the way you're sourcing things to get more sustainable materials, looking at living wages and the communities that you affect in your supply chain. These are longer term discussions, but isn't everything that's worthwhile in business a longer term discussion? I can't think of much that you can do to make a decision to increase your quarterly earnings that's actually good for the business long term. There's plenty of things you can do to drive up your short term earnings and profits. One of those things, again, is to just buy back stock. It's the quickest way. But that has not just zero, I mean, it has zero to negative impact on your future relevance and future business. You're not putting any money into the company, you're just buying the stock. So I, I think, again, this comes down to seeing sustainability in ESG as just core to the strategic choices of the business and the relevance of the business, like other major factors in your thinking about the business, you know, your, your brand positioning, your marketing, what you're going to do with tech and AI now. These are all just core to what it means to be a business. And that's what's happening now with the sustainability discussion. It's increasingly becoming just part of how you do things, not part of your philanthropic efforts on the side. That's the big move that I've been working on for 20 years, and I think we're finally seeing. Andre, you work with many senior leaders in leading net positive and sustainability-oriented companies. In your experience, how important is leadership when it comes to making a success of sustainability? And what can leaders do to make these strategies click within the company? Sure. Look, we have, in my book, Net Positive, with Paul, the subtitle is about courage. And that's really one of the core things that needs to happen. You know, we lay out what we believe are the kinds of attributes that leaders will need in this world. Courage is really the core of it, but it also comes from your own purpose. We, you know, in the book, when we start laying out how do you build a company that that becomes net positive more naturally, that is helping the world, the first step really is starting with yourself. We have a chapter 
that's just called How Much Do You Care? And you start with your own purpose, your own sense of duty to the world. Do you care, right? Do you care about these, these issues and what's happening to the planet, what's happening to society? So there is a need to tap into your own humanity. I think that's been lost in business. And you start from that purpose that allows you to become, I think, a better leader, a more inspirational leader, and take on the courage to do something that's very hard, especially for people that have been so successful, the leaders and companies, to be humble and to ask questions and to say basically to the world, yeah, we want to get to zero carbon or we want to go beyond. We have to change the way we source things. We don't know how to do that. Most things we don't have easy answers to yet. There's some of the answers. But that means asking for help. It means working with others. And you have to have the courage to say to the world, hey, we need help and the courage to push back, right? The courage to push back on the short term earnings pressure and tell investors, hey, we're, we're working for a longer term here. It's one of the main things Paul did when he got to Unilever was he stopped quarterly reporting. It was, I think, one of the most important strategic moves I've ever seen. And it freed up executives to think a little longer not forever, but just say, okay, for this year, I want to invest in efficiency. For this year, I need to do more brand building just to take a longer view. So you have to be willing to push back. And I think now, I think we'll come back. I'm sure we're going to get some more to this topic of this backlash. You have to have the courage to push back against what is political noise quite often and the courage to stand for what your business needs and what the the people that you care about in the business, your employees, your customers, what they need. And that, it takes courage, right? But let's let's be honest, the leaders of business are making more than they've ever made. They're making shocking amounts of money. This is what it should be for, right? They're paid the big bucks. There's hard choices to be made. So do it. Very interesting. Now, getting to the heart of the discussion here, we've discussed some really important context and trends you spent considerable time thinking about and, and writing about uh, mega trends, the, the big trends that are, are driving changes in, in the world and the world of business. And I'm just wondering what you think are a few key trends over the next year that you think will impact companies and their efforts to, to develop more sustainable value chains to be more net positive. Right. Well, just in addition to just the general mega trends that are affecting everything and affecting how business is done, like the changing climate the increasing demand from investors. There's just this context changing. I'd say specific to the idea of making more sustainable value chains, there's a few. I, you know, Clearly, one is that there's continued supply chain issues. There are delays. This has been a problem for three years. There is continued inflation. There's now, through the government investment in the US first and growing in Europe, the investment in building more manufacturing on site, in country, this is going to change and create a little bit of a battlefield in the in the world trade that's affecting supply chains. And I think that the pandemic taught companies a lot that we could move really quickly, but also supply chains were not resilient, right? We there were a lot of things that were made like in one place because that's the most efficient way to do it. So I think there's going to be continued stress on supply chains in general and how do we get things from point A to B and how do we have enough? Second there's just clearly more transparency. Uh, that's coming from a rising trend in society in general, the, the expectations of consumers and businesses that they know much more about what's in every product, where did it come from, who made it, where they paid a living wage, and on and on, that there's more demand for knowing the story 
And combined with that is just continued regulation of transparency from the SEC in the US, from the EU, demanding that you measure and report your scope one and two emissions and your climate risks to your business. And they're adding scope three into that mix. So this is like a forced transparency, which I think is generally a good thing. The more data you have on something and the more you have to talk about it, the more you can manage it. How big a challenge is that for companies becoming more transparent? I guess strategically or maybe emotionally difficult, right? It's hard in a way. We've we've all been raised in a you know competitive advantage above all approach to business. So it can feel weird to be transparent, to work with your peers, to work with your value chain and be much more open about these things. That was one of the major learnings in working with Paul as a former CEO and kind of he's such an innovative CEO was to think about this a little differently to say, if we're working in this much more open way, there's still going to be companies who can take advantage of that knowledge and and have better speed. And we believe the companies that have built the elements of being that positive are going to be more competitive, even with kind of open information for all. So there is kind of that emotional challenge, but there's just, there's just one I, I keep hearing when I'm at sustainability events, I'm not at too often, but you just hear so much discussion now about scope three because the data isn't really there, right? You might have in your first tier suppliers, if you're a big company and you have a bunch of kind of big companies in first tier, they probably have a decent handle on their emissions and can provide that. But you start going deeper into supply chains and you get to mid-sized companies, smaller companies, companies around the world, like a apparel maker in Vietnam or in China. They just may not have this information, haven't had to do it. And so there's a lot of concern now about that we may be asked to report on scope three before we can. There's a lot of sectors that are finding approaches, ways to estimate, right? In food and agriculture, they might measure kind of what's the emissions of a typical farm and then just multiply by how many tons of tomatoes or whatever they bought. There's shorthand that get you part of the way there, but it's really going to drive just so much more need for the software players, you know, the typical software players out there helping business and data gathering and tons of consulting tons of building IT systems, finding ways to scale for small and medium enterprises, the tools they need. It's all going to create, I think, quite uh, an ecosystem. And and this is what happens in transitions, right? Now, there's a growing momentum on the regulatory front, increasing scale and reach of regulation. What impact do you think that's going to have? Yeah, look, I think the regulations that are coming and are being talked about now every day, they are at a different scale because they're they're addressing a whole category of business that hasn't been really regulated before. I mean, there's been compliance-related issues around environmental impact for years, right? Measuring your water impact and your water releases, your air pollution, very kind of blocking and tackling things. And so companies have always said, oh, we're going to be in compliance with the law. Well, what's included in compliance is growing pretty fast. And there's going to be much more demand from the the countries you operate in, you as a as a as an entity, from the stock exchanges, from your investors, but I'd say there's also a category that that some people would call like de facto regulation, which is if your customers asking for it. So examples like Walmart or Target have asked for reporting on and reduction of certain chemicals, a whole long list of chemicals in products. They have affected the chemical industry and say the toy business or the plastic business more than maybe regulations have. 
because it's it's a form of regulation if your customers say we only will do business with you if you do xyz if you cut your emissions in in half or whatever and i mentioned before these partnerships that are going on these b2b partnerships where there's incentives now for companies who do better and they get more money for from banks they they get more business that's a form of regulation and and i think it's it's potentially much stronger when you start getting into the norms of business and even the norms of society what young people for example expect of companies it almost doesn't matter what the government's asking i mean i'm overstating it i'm oversimplifying but the the standards on a lot of these issues are higher coming from your stakeholders than even the government government's usually lagging right very interesting. I get from what you're saying, compliance is not enough. That's a bare minimum, almost legalistic approach. What kind of frame of mind do you think companies need to be in thinking about how to deal with this new regulatory environment? Yeah, it sounds very, I guess, touchy-feely to say, take an opportunity mindset, you know, like, <laughs> go meditate. But I think it, it is that, right? It's always been this defensive. I mean, the early days of having anybody doing sustainability in a company. It wasn't really called that. It's been called sustainability. Now you've got people with title of head of ESG. Early on, it really was compliance or it was very frequently somebody in like public relations or marketing or something, but much more like public affairs. In essence, the the CEO would say, can you go take care of these NGOs that are asking us questions? Like go make sure we look good. It was very basic. And it was, we comply with the law. The mindset now is again, far more core to the business. You know, how does the demand and, and under that demand comes stakeholder demand and the demand stemming from the way the planet works, the demand to decarbonize, how does that create opportunity for your business? The clean economy is growing exponentially. Bloomberg just released data that in 2022, there was a trillion dollars invested globally, basically in renewables, batteries, clean technology. And for the first time, that was more than the money invested in fossil fuel infrastructure. And those two are only going in separate directions. So it's now a mindset of, are we taking part in what are many multi-trillion dollar markets? This is where the world's going. And are you serving or a part of the changing dynamic of how we build everything, how we get around, how we make and deliver our food, everything. Everything is changing, being decarbonized. So you have to take an opportunity mindset that this is how you stay relevant and this is how you grow and solve customer problems. Sorry, you've alluded a couple of times to some of the, I guess, so-called ESG backlash, some of the noise and emotion around ESG in the United States in particular. I'm just wondering, how do you see that playing out? And what does it mean for companies sustainability efforts, it's quite a heated scene at the moment. It really is. I mean, look, I never want to underestimate what a heated political scene can do. I think nobody was predicting in 2015 what would happen to the US, how populous we would become, how large the attacks on democracy continue to be. The US is still in arguably quite a bit of trouble on democracy. And there's a lot of people trying to undermine it. And this is part of that. This is this attack on ESG, this attack on, quote, woke, on progressive. It's all part of one story of, you know, basically halting the progress of the world and 
and saying the world's changing. I don't like it. I'm going to stand astride the the road and say nobody, nobody passes. You know, I I find that we shouldn't underestimate that. Clearly, it has huge impacts, but a, the forces that are driving this are so fundamental. Like there is a climate change problem. It's not a made up model. There is a deep change happening in the norms of what every generation expects and the younger generations that are becoming now the majority of the workforce and will be the people with all the money. And, you know, they're going to be the core of humanity, the millennials as they get older, Gen Z, they are moving in a different direction. And there's only so much you can stop this fundamental shift. And we're seeing right now an, an interesting, very interesting anti-anti ESG. You've got surprising organizations like bankers associations in these very conservative states in the U.S. because the conservative states is the only place where they're trying to pass laws to say you can't screen investments, you can't use ESG as an investment. You got bankers saying, we have ESG statements, we have products, we have customers that want this. So they're lobbying against what I'm sure is normally their allies, right? These governors and these, these legislators and saying, we want this ESG world. Our customers want it, you know? So it's, it's going to be very hard for them to stop this progress. It is just too core. They'll muddy it. They'll make it seem ugly. You might see terminology have to change, right? The other thing that we're already seeing and definitely will happen is that companies will just get quieter about some of the work they're doing. They, they're calling this, people are calling this green hushing instead of green washing. It's kind of the opposite. Green washing is saying you're doing a lot and not doing anything. Green hushing is you're doing stuff. You just don't want to talk about it so much. I'm perfectly fine with that, right? As long as the work is getting done. And if investors have decided ESG is a valuable screen on risk and they see more demand for ESG products, they will continue to offer them, even if they try not to talk to politicians about it very much. So yes, it's going to be a battle. And I don't want to sound like I've got rose-colored glasses about this. There's going to be some ugly stuff. But if there's anything more powerful than populism, it's capitalism. And you know, this is what I'm seeing and believe will win out. Very interesting. In earlier episodes of the Ecovada's Scope 3 Agenda podcast, interviewees have suggested that many investors are becoming more interested and indeed more educated about supply chains. I'm just wondering what your experience has been or, or indeed what else needs to happen here? Yeah, I don't know if I have a, a perfect view on that. I'd say investors are clearly climbing a huge learning curve on what sustainability is. It's not natural for them. It's becoming the norm. And they're learning how issues create risk or opportunity for companies. I think as companies increasingly, and again, it's it's demanded by increasingly the SEC and others, as they report on this and report on what they believe are their risks, you will see a lot of discussion of supply chains. So there will be this circle of companies saying, here's our risk. There's, you know, extreme weather disruption to this particular supply chain for our business. And that will show up in these reports. And then investors will say, oh, okay. And they'll ask more and more questions about it. There will be a, I think, a cycle and it's already begun. I don't know how, how much they understand that yet, but the core of talking about climate materiality on your business will likely be around your value chain. It, it, it will have to be. 
And so investors will get much smarter about it and will develop their models and funds that you know look for companies that have low supply chain risk. I'm sure that will all happen. I'm just wondering, finally, to your work with Paul on the journey, I guess, to a net positive business is going to be seen as an evolution, building on previous versions, I suppose, of the idea of sustainability. It's a more fuller, because beyond that, has the net positive agenda, you might say, a lot more to go? Or I was wondering that the evolution of this idea might mean for companies at various stages of their sustainability journey. It's a good question. Look, I guess whether it's an evolution or revolution depends on where you sit. Yes, it is an extension of sustainability. You know, as I described, it's not just reducing, but going to this positive. But it is a, a pretty big revolution in, in thinking about how a business should operate, what its purpose is. And, and going back to kind of a, in, in a way, a much more old-fashioned, older view of we're here to solve problems for customers. And there's no bigger problems than these existential threats to humanity. And so there's no bigger markets than solving those problems. And it forces a very deep questioning of the core pillars of business and economic thought of the last 50 years, right? The neoliberal economic model has been shareholders above all, the Milton Friedman view, shareholders above all. It does force a deep questioning of that. And again, courage. I think where we're headed is certainly more transparency, more values in business, more humanity. And again, this is, this is generational. You see this now. I hear this from almost every company I talk to. The youngest employees, the Gen Zs are coming in wanting values. And for many reasons, there's no real loyalty in businesses anymore and between young people and businesses, you know, businesses started 30 years ago, basically firing people to save money. There's no lifetime employment, right? My, my dad worked for 35 years for IBM. He has a pension, which is a word that you could use with Gen Z and they probably don't know what it is. It's, it's a different world now. And so they want companies that have values. So that's where we're headed more and more is companies have to tell that story and, and have more humanity to it. And, you know, we don't really have the time for companies to move through all the stages of development that we've been through for 20, 30 years. We're just, we're going to need to leapfrog. We're going to have to jump to new technologies, quite literally, where new areas that need energy in the world will just go right to renewables. But leapfrog how we run businesses, how we think about them. And I think the younger generations are going to make that happen. We're going to have to go quicker. AI is going to drive it and all the sustainability pressures are going to drive it. We're going to see a leap in how we think about business and how business operates. Well, that's a great vision, Andrew. And uh, thank you so much for your time and the work you're doing and helping to communicate and share and generate these values. And I wish you all the best with your ongoing work. Thank you for speaking thank to us. Thank you so today. much. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Sustainable Value Chains podcast with EcoVadis. We hope you found it interesting and we'd love if you could share it with your colleagues and leave a review. If you'd like to find out more about EcoVadis, please visit ecovadis.com.